Welcome to Parkview. We're glad to have you here. It's 11 o'clock, so if you can move in, we'd really appreciate it. We start our second Saturday service in two weeks. I'll give you a dollar if you will slide over to Saturday night to worship. I promise, a dollar, a whole dollar. I might even go more um, if you take your family. Uh, welcome. We're glad to have you here. I'm Tim Harlow, and I'm an empty nester. I don't know if there's an Empty Nesters Anonymous, but I feel like I'm enjoying it too much already, you know? <laughs> All I can say is, she gone. And, um, <laughs> and it was great. It was great dropping her off in California. Our youngest daughter went to college in California. We dropped her off last weekend. That's where I was. And uh, it was a phenomenal experience. I've got a blog, timharlow.com. If you want to read a little bit more about some of the God stories that happened, it was amazing. Um, but I don't want to talk about that today. I want to talk about why it's not good to be alone, why you need a support group somehow. You need a group, whether it's Empty Nesters Anonymous, whatever it is, you need people in your life. You need people around you. Here's a crazy story. November day, 2002, Jim Sulkers from Canada pulled his covers up over his, his head to go to sleep that night and died. November, 2002. On August 25th, true story, on August 25th, 2004, Police broke into his home because of concerned relatives and found him dead. Almost two years. His body was in a mummified state. The food in the refrigerator was spoiled. The calendar was two years out of date. Everything else looked the same. And you're like, how could that happen? Well, he was reclusive, obviously. He didn't have friends. Uh, he was estranged from his family, so his family, you know, he wasn't talking to them, so they didn't know any different. He had automatic banking things going on, so it was automatically depositing his pension check, automatically paying his bills, so nobody came looking for him. And he had a medical condition that prevented his body from decomposing and emitting any odors. What is that? Too much Diet Coke. You've been reading about it. <laughs> am I right or am I right? Isn't that crazy? I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how that happens. I don't know. Uh, but it happened to this guy. True story. Almost two years before he was found. And as soon as I tell you that story, what happens in your mind? You're like, wow, I wonder how long I could be dead before somebody would notice, right? And they better not wait two years to check on me. And i got to get off the NutraSuite. All those things are going through your mind. And I understand that, and you do. I, I love the way another writer put it. He said, who are going to be the pallbearers at your, wed at your funeral, at your wedding? There's a... It's a good Freudian slip. Is that what they call them? <laughs> been a long weekend. There's a whole other sermon there, isn't there? <laughs> the maid of bearer and the best of bearer. And... Who are going to be the pallbearers at your funeral? Let's try it that way. Do you have eight people in your life that you know care enough about you to carry your body out when it's time to go? I love the story of the old woman who, was a, who, who had never been married, and she was kind of bitter about it. She was talking to her pastor about how to you know, take care of her funeral arrangements. She, she said, I want all women pallbearers at my, wed at my funeral. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I'm going to want all women pallbearers at my funeral. And he said, okay, but why? She said, because if there wasn't a guy that was good enough to take me out while I was alive, there's not a guy that's going to take me out when I'm dead. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Okay, I'm getting some shout-outs from some. 
Own up, guys. There's a serious notion behind that, though. Jay Kessler says, I want to live my life in such a way that when I die, I know there will be eight people who will want to be a part of this thing for me. They'll want to carry me out. They'll want, they are my friends. And he wrote this story around the fact that he, he had met a guy who had a list in his wallet of his pallbearers because he was afraid that people wouldn't even know who he wanted to have in there. Isn't that sad? So who are your pallbearers? What are the names of the people that you have in your life that love Jesus and love you and, and, and are going to surround you when times are hard? You better figure it out because it's not good to be alone. Don't be the last to know. Get it faster with 4G. That's my favorite. I love that commercial. It's not good to be alone. You don't want to do the flash mob by your own yourself. You don't want to do life by yourself because the world can be a lonely place. What do they say about the mass murderer wackos after it's all over? They go and interview their neighbors, and their neighbors always say, I didn't know them very well because they were kind of a loner, a recluse. They were kind of on their own, okay? Hello, is that a problem? People, if your daughter's dating a guy and she says, well, he's kind of a loner, move to another country. Get away. It's not good for man to be alone. We were designed to need community in the same way we were designed to need air and water. I am certainly not the first person to point out how times have changed. Many of you grew up in the city where you had a, a front porch out in front of your house and you'd sit on the front porch in the evening and, and, and you would watch as people walk by and you would talk and have conversations and everybody knew each other. You know, the whole Mayberry concept, everybody was involved in everybody's life and then we moved out to the suburbs and what do we do? We put in electric garage door openers so that we could open the door, drive in and close the door before anybody ever sees us, right? And then we go out to our back deck and we sit back there by ourselves or with our family. And if we're really bad, we've got a privacy fence all the way around it. Do you see how times have changed? And that's not good. It is not good to be alone. Do you know what the number one issue for us, dropping our daughter off at a college where she didn't know anybody and it was in Los Angeles, it was a long way away. It wasn't the college. We, we liked the college. It wasn't her schedule. It wasn't her dorm room. We went to Target three days in a row for crying out loud. It, it wasn't that. It was, will she find any friends? I mean, her and her roommates didn't know each other before they met out there, and she did not know one other person in a college in Los Angeles. So as a parent, what is your number one fear? Your number one fear is, well, who's she going to hook up with? And, and, and it's fantastic, and it's going well, but I sat with the girls. She's got two roommates. She's in a triple. I, I sat with the three girls who just met each other when they moved in. I sat with them on Sunday night at the CAF, as, and we watched as by this time all the upperclassmen had started to come in. And all the upperclassmen were coming in. The, the place was jumping. I was amazed at how many people were there. And everybody was walking in. It was like the family reunion. Everybody was walking in going, Oh, hi, how you been? I missed you. How was your summer? All that stuff was going on. And they're just kind of sitting there. I mean, I could see it in their eyes. And Becca said, I can't wait to have that. And she probably has it already by now, but that was my number one concern about her coming in. And you know what? That should always be our concern. Because the Bible says in Romans 12, since we are all in one body in Christ and we belong to each other, and each of us needs the other. You're not designed to be alone. In the beginning, God, right? But God was a community. Do you understand this? 
God said, let us make man in our own image. You understand that, that God is the Trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit wrapped up into one. We talk about the Trinity from time to time. I can't explain it to you. I can't help you to understand it. But God has three parts. He is three different parts. God is community. Here's my point. The, 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 the whole essence of God is not singular. It's plural. God didn't say, I think I'll make man in my own image. He said, let us make man in our own image. I don't care what you thought. If you read the shack, I don't care what you thought of the theology of it one way or the other. That doesn't matter to me. If you read that book, you have got to admit that he did a phenomenal job of showing us what the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and their interrelation must be like. Three parts. Since the very beginning of time, God has existed in community. Okay? Think about this for a second. God is a small group. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. God is a small group. God is not by himself. When he said, let us make man in our own image, he was not only talking about the fact that he was the triune God, that he was three in one, but he was talking about how he was designing man to be in need of community. So what did he do? He said, okay, we're going to make all the animals, and then we're going to make man, and we're making man by himself. And then the next thing he's going to do is he's going to name all the animals. So God had all the animals come by. Then he had them come by, and they were in groups, because obviously they needed to reproduce themselves, so they were in groups. You know, unfortunately, there were two mosquitoes, not just one mosquito. You know, that would have solved everything, right? But there were two of everything, and they came by, and Adam is naming the animals. He doesn't realize this is going on, but God is giving him a lesson in the need for community. And Adam sees all the animals go by, and, and finally God looks down, and he says, Hey, Adam, it's not good to be alone, is it? All the things in the garden were good, except for one thing, loneliness. It's not good to be alone. And so God made Eve and created communion. We talk about that verse from the context of marriage, but it's, it's actually even deeper than that. It's the very basic fundamental need for community, for, for somebody to be in my life. Romans 12 says, So in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I have two burdens in my life. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm hitting the half a century mark next weekend. I'm, I'm, th- I'm thinking about what the rest of my life looks like, you know? Um, and I don't know how many years that is. It's 20 years, 30 years, you know, depending on how long I stay on the non-Daniel diet plan. I don't know. But um, it, it, I'm going to spend some more time on this earth to try to figure out. What, I've been thinking about what does the next chapter look like for me? And I came up with this purpose statement. It's kind of, a, kind of a good one, I think, for our church. It is, I want to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. Pretty simple. I want to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. I want to bring heaven to earth, meaning Jesus prayed, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want want to get rid of poverty. I want to get rid of injustice. I want to rescue those who who need us. I, I want to bring a bit of heaven to the people who are here on this earth. I want to do that. And my second part is I want to bring earth to heaven. I want to bring you earth people to heaven with me and any of your friends. I want to bring, I want to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. That's how it's got to work. As long as there's one person in our ministry area who doesn't have Jesus, then we're going to continue to grow and find a way, to place to put them in a place for them to park. And, and we're going to reach out and we're going to plant churches and we're going to have more campuses because I want to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. And it works out good in a large church like this because we're one of the fastest growing churches, one of the largest churches in America. So when it's time to bring earth to heaven, the last time we did the shoe drive, we did 10,000 pairs of shoes. Okay? 
And I hope we have that many more now. And if you forgot to bring them, take them off before you leave and, and walk out barefoot, okay? And it also works out good when we're trying to help bring earth to heaven because we have a lot of people who are reaching out to a lot of other people and, and we can help bring people to Jesus. That works out really, really well. But at the same time, as our church grows and gets bigger, the problem is what happens if the needs of the individual get overlooked? I mean, we can't let that happen. What about people? How, how, how easy would it be for people to fall through the cracks? So as I think about the grander vision of heaven to earth and earth to heaven, I have to think of how do we deal with the problems of that along the way in a large church. So what do we do? Default position around here at Parkview, just in case you've ever wondered, default position is always to go back to the New Testament and see how they did it in the very first church. Okay? If we ever have a question about how to do something, the first thing we do is we go back and try to figure out what they did in the, in the first church. And I go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 15, and it tells me that there were 120 people in the upper room. The first church started with 120 people. And you might think, if Parkview is all you know, you might think, well, that, that's a small little church. The average size church in America is 75 people. You know that? That's the average size church. There are a lot of churches smaller than that. Okay, the average church is 75 people. So already when the church starts in the upper room, there's 120 people. It's already a decent sized church. But then the Holy Spirit shows up, right? And the day of Pentecost happens and Peter gets up and preaches. And what happens? 3,000 people respond to the gospel of Jesus on the very first day. So all of a sudden, boom, they have this huge church they don't know what to do with. Acts 2.47 says the believers were added daily. Acts 4.4 says they counted and there were 5,000 men by this time. And for some reason they only counted the men, but if there were 5,000 men, there were like 10,000 women because there's always more chicks at church, am I right? So you got, and you got all the kids and you got all these things going on, right? So this, by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, there's already like 20,000, 30,000 members. Acts 5.14 says they kept on being added. Acts 5.28, they filled all Jerusalem. Acts 6, 7, the number increased rapidly. And you get all the way over to, uh, to Acts chapter 21, which is probably on the timeline about 25 years into the church. And it says many thousands have believed. The word myrios means tens of thousands. Scholars believe literally that the church of Jerusalem was 100,000 people by the time 25 years came around. It was 100,000 people in a town of 200,000 people. Unbelievable, isn't it? 100,000 members of Parkview Church of Jerusalem. I know it's called that because I've been to the Holy Land. I even dug this out when I was there. It's amazing. <laughs> that is heaven to earth and earth to heaven. That's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, that is absolutely incredible. I have a question. If the early church went from 120 to 100,000 people in 25 years, where do they put them all and how do they care for them? That's always going to be my question. Where do you put them and how do you care for them? Fortunately, we have the story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says, and they met together day after day in the temple courts and and, and, and from house to house. A two-fold strategy for the church. Large group celebration, small group fellowship. Both of them were essential for the first church. Both of them are essential for our church. They met in the temple courts. Those were big. And they stood up for worship so they would get together. They could have thirty or 40,000 people for a, a, a large group celebration if they wanted to. And it's great to be in a large group celebration, isn't it? I love worshiping in here because the music's loud and I can't hear how bad you sing. It's wonderful. 
It's awesome. And you can praise God, and there's some kind of feeling about being with a large group. Those of you that went to Promise Keepers events, and you've been to large concerts and things like that, I mean, it's just incredible to be with that, okay? But, but the problem is, you can't share you know, your problems with those people in that kind of a situation. You can't talk to somebody by sitting there staring at the back of their head. You need community. Insert shameless puppy picture here. Okay. Sh- oh, I heard some guys. Don't don't do the ah thing, guys. Just, that's for the ladies. Okay. We're not going to count you as a man in our attendance if you awe at that picture. What happened in the church of Jerusalem became the prototype for every church in the New Testament. Listen to this. Uh, Romans 16. Greet the church that meets in their home. Okay. It happened in Rome. In Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, the church that meets in their house. In Colossae, Colossians 4.15, to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Every place the church went, they had large group celebration, and they met in their house. Now you say, well, what's the advantage of that? Well, let me, get, let me tell you four things that are the advantage of this. Rick Warren says, there are four advantages of meeting in homes. Number one, it's infinitely expandable. As long as you've got more houses, you can expand your small group ministry. It's really that simple. That's how the first church got started. Number two, it's unlimited geographically. It can spread out to wherever. We have people that drive 50 miles to come to Parkview. As a matter of fact, if you drive more than 30 minutes to get to Parkview, put your hand up right now. All right, look at that. That's insane. You guys are crazy. Thank you, thank you, but you're crazy. They drive more than 30 minutes to come to Parkview, and that's on a weekend, okay? So what happens if they try to get over here on Tuesday night for a Bible study? It's going to take 45 minutes, because that's during the week, and I-80 will be all shut down. That's the problem, okay? The advantage is we can take the church to their geographical area, and we have small groups all over this place, all over this place. We also believe that it's three good stewardship. If you have a church of 75, you can build a building big enough and afford a building big enough to do pretty much all the ministry that needs to happen there. But if you have a large church, it just doesn't make any sense for us to build a big enough building to have everybody come here for their spiritual guidance and care and spiritual instruction. So what are we going to do? We're going to borrow your house. (laughs) And you can write it off. I mean, you might have to talk to the IRS about that, but as far as I'm concerned, you can write it off. (laughs) Okay? Fourth good part about the small groups is it promotes relationships. You get together in a little classroom. If you you got together in the cry room back there and sat around the couches and talked, it'd be really great. But when I go over to somebody's house, I get to know them. I see their pictures on the wall. I see what kind of wine they like to drink. I smell their cats and say, I'm not coming back to this small group anymore because they got cats. I got all that, okay? And I know that's, that's the beauty of it. You get to know people, and that's what we want because we're made for community. It's not good to be alone. And you're going to say to me, Tim, there's no way the Park New Church of Jerusalem could have had 100,000 people. And that doesn't make any sense. Who would go to a church like that? I looked it up. Do you know how many churches there are today that are over 100,000 people who worship there every weekend? There are eight today. I'm, I'm not talking about members. I'm talking about have that many people come a weekend none of them are in the United States of America because we got this little paradigm we you know we're like oh, Osteen's church is you know really really big and we, we don't get this three or four of them are in Seoul Korea 
uh, one's in Chile, one's in Colombia, around the world, one's in India. Around the world, there are churches that are 100,000 people. The largest church in America is in Seoul, Korea. They have 750,000 members. They worship, they worship 250,000 people a weekend, and that's only because they tell people, they tell half their people to stay home every weekend. They have one big auditorium and an eight-story uh, office building with 2,000-seat auditoriums with big screens, and people come in and do that. And you're like, well, why, why would you do that? Why would you want to worship with 250,000 people in seven services on, on a Sunday? That doesn't make any sense. I'll tell you why. Because they've got everything split up into small groups. They have 50,000 small groups. How do they do that? They have 50,000 small group leaders. Because it's infinitely expandable. And if you have a problem, if you get sick, if you have anything going on in your life, somebody's going to be there for you in your life every day. As a matter of fact, people from the United States who have studied this church in Korea said that you would get better care as a, as a human being in that church of, of, of 750,000 members than you would in the average church in America. Because the average church in America, you're going to be waiting for a pastor to come and take care of you and care for you. But in that church, there's one pastor for every ten people. He's a small group leader. He, he's making sure he's checking up on you and everything is the way that it ought to be in your life. It's crazy, isn't it? The best example of that in the United States is Saddleback. Saddleback, Rick Warren's church. They run 23,000 people a weekend. They have 28,000 people in small groups. Four to 5,000 small groups all around California. Why am I holding that up? Because that is the only way that things are going to work. And, and the only way that Parkview is going to move forward from this point is if we get more homes and more hosts. So what we're doing today is asking you to host a small group. On your uh, bulletin, you take your bulletin out, you see that tear off at the end. Um, it's a, just a communication card that we use all the time. But um, if you would like to, uh, on the back it says host a weird life group. If you'd like to host a life group, just fill this out, and instead of putting it in the offering basket, there are going to be people with balloons and a, and a packet to give you on the way out. Just give it to them. You're not signing up for anything. Just give them your communication card. They'll give you a packet, sign you up to be a small group host. What do you got to do? You got to make brownies and, throw, and show a DVD in. People show up. You say, hi, I'm Tim Harless, my wife Denise. Here's some hemp-free brownies. Well, here's a DVD. Let's watch it together. Really, really simple, okay? It's not going to be that difficult because the truth of the matter is this is not about an hour on Sunday. This is not about an hour on Saturday night. This is not about the weekend. This is not about staring at the back of heads. What are you going to get? How can you help the person in front of you by staring at the back of their head? Dude, it might be time for Rogaine. That's about it, right? That's all you got back there. You need to be sitting in, not in rows, in circles. Here's what the Hebrew writer said. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Is there anybody in your life that's spurring you on to love and good deeds? Are you in anybody else's life spurring them on to love and good deeds? That's what we're supposed to do as believers. Let us not give up meeting together as someone in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. As, as we see the day approaching, we're supposed to encourage one another. Now, I've got to be honest with you. As a pastor, that's one of the best verses we can pull out to gripe at people about coming to church. So I've preached sermons to people before, which is kind of dumb because they're the ones that are already there. But I've preached sermons before about how you ought to be really involved in church and you ought to come. That's not what that verse is about. I've just got to be honest. Obviously, from the verse in front of it, it says, Consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. You're not doing that at the back of the heads. You only do that in small groups. You need to be involved in community. 
Don't forsake the assembling of, of yourselves together, he says. Over 50 times in the Bible, it uses the one another phrase. Love one another, serve one another, help one another, pray for one another, greet one another, encourage one another, care for one another. Fifty times in the Bible it says that's how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be me caring for you. I can't do that. I'm not supposed to be staff caring for you. We can't do that. You're supposed to be spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Perfect example. How many of you are members of a health club? Put your hand up. I won't ask you the follow-up question. Members of a health club. All right. What is the follow-up question? The follow-up question is, do you ever show up at the health club, right? I mean, I, that's the problem. The question is pretty easy. How many of you are members? Yeah, January 4th last year, I joined the health club. January 8th, I never showed up again, right? There are three categories of people who want to take care of their health. The first one is people who are a member of a health club. Does you absolutely no good to be a member of a health club? Does you no good to be a member of a church, Really? unless you start taking it to the next level. And those are the people who are actually going to go to the health club and do something about it. But the problem with that middle category is if you go by yourself, it's real easy to do nothing, isn't it? I mean, I'm looking around, I'm seeing some people that are at my health club. They see me do it. You've done the same thing, you know? You're like, oh, it's chest and by day. I'm going to go over to the, oh, there's a line for that machine. <laughs> Guess I won't do that. You know, and you go over here and you start, you know, you start doing a few. And, oh, my shoulder's a little sore. I don't, I don't want to hurt my rotator cuff. I'll just quit. And what do you end up doing? You 30 minutes at the, at, the, at the smoothie bar reading a fitness magazine, right? <laughs> like, oh, that, that looks good. And then you leave. Oh, oh I got to go, okay? And if somebody said, well, how often do you work out? You say, oh, I'm at the health club two or three times a week. But it's not doing you any good. Because category three are the people that are really serious about their health. Those are the people that go to a class or work out with a friend or have a trainer. You know what I'm saying? They, they go to a class and they get in one of those Zumba classes or something, you know, and they're in there and they're sweating out and they don't want to quit because they don't want to look like a wimp because those other people are in the class. Or they work out with a friend who's calling you a wimp, you know, and says, I'm here to pump you up, right? <laughs> Only people over 45 understand what I'm saying. I'm sorry about that, okay? <laughs> Or you have a personal trainer where you're actually paying a guy who's helping you do those last few because that's really what's going to make things happen. Guess what? Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's working out together in our spiritual life. That's how it's supposed to be. And here's what Jesus said. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. Now listen, I do not believe that God is not with us all the time. Jesus said, I am with you always even to the end of the age. But there's obviously something special about the dynamic of community where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. It's, it's, it's Jesus and us, not Jesus and me, and it changes the whole dynamic. Classic text from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have good return for their work. If one falls down... His friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Jesus said there's a main goal in your life, two of them, 
Number one commandment is to love God, and number two is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, those go together. You can succeed in loving God and fail at loving your brother. You can succeed at loving your brother and fail at loving God. You can be a great friend. You can read self-help books and watch TV shows and figure out how to be a good friend, a good, a good a lover, a good mate, or good whatever. You can figure that out. But if you don't have God, you don't have it all put together. 1 John 4 says, since, we've loved, since God has loved us so much, we ought to love each other. It's about that connection between the two things. The, the problem is Christians make the opposite mistake sometimes, and they think it's just about me and God and, and this relationship that's going up here, and that's not true either because if I don't have my neighbor as myself in there with me, it doesn't work. It's a combination. Movie Gladiator, there's a perfect scene. I've showed it before. Maximus is this guy who used to be the great soldier, and now he's a slave. And he's, he's led into the arena to, to be slaughtered with these other gladiators in a reenactment of the Battle of Carthage. And, uh, and, and, and they know how the Battle of Carthage turned out. They're supposed to get killed. And they've got all these crazy chariots and these crazy warriors and these wild animals that are going to come at them and come at them from every place. And it doesn't look like there's any way that any of these gladiators are going to survive this. But Maximus is a great leader. And he gets everybody together and he says, what the classic line, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. Remember this? Whatever comes out of that gate, stay. They don't even know what's going to come. Can I tell you this? Whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. And what comes out of that gate is crazy, and it comes at them. And as it starts to come at them, they gather together, and they put their shields together. Except one guy decides he's going to go try to do it by himself, and he gets mowed down because he can't do it by himself. And they stay together, and they stay together, and the arrows come in, but they're together, and their shields are covering them. And finally, he gets to this one part, and he says, okay, now. And then they break out, and they actually win and I love this scene because the king looks down and he says my, if my memory is of Roman history is rusty but didn't we beat Carthage the first time because the gladiators actually won the slaves actually won how did they do that whatever comes out of the gate stay together Jesus said my prayer for you is that you be brought together in complete unity Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. But i got to tell you something. He did not promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against you. He promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against us, against we. It's the power of community. We're going to do communion right now and um, offer you a chance to spend some time with God. And I know that... I mean, for a lot of you, you're believers, and this has just been a good week for you to remember how important it is that you get connected, and we want you to, we need a bunch of hosts right now, we're getting ready to ramp this up, we've got a lot of crazy great things that are getting ready to happen around here in the fall, and we need you, but some of you might have just walked in, and you've been gone from God for a long time, or maybe you've never felt like you were ever with God, and I kept coming back this week to the whole Abba Father thing. Abba means daddy. It, 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 and when we look at God, we're supposed to look at God as our Father, our Father who art in heaven. And as a father, i, I got to tell you that if right now in your life God is tugging at your heart and you've been away from home for a while, I get that. I get that. I understand now why God wants you back home because I walk by three empty bedrooms now where my kids used to sleep, and I can't wait for them to come home. 
And God feels the same way about you. Jesus told the most important parable in the New Testament was about the gracious father and his prodigal son who went away, who was wild, he was bad, he spent all the dad's money, and yet every day the father went out to the fence, to the horizon, to look out and to watch for him, to pray that he would come back home. And that's how your father feels about you. And when you get back home, the the thing that really excites us dads is, and it'll be Christmas for me now, when all three of my daughters are back in their rooms and they have the community that they have together and we can be a family together, but I love watching them together. And that's what God looks at the rest of us and he says, I want you guys to be together. That's God our Father. That's how it's supposed to work. And if right now God is tugging at your heart, it's just because he misses you. Let's have communion. God, I pray that you'll be with us right now. We thank you for giving your son to die on the cross for us. We thank you that the only time you separated your small group community that is you, the Godhead, the only time that you separated that was when you allowed your son to take all my sins and die on the cross, and you had to separate yourself from him. And it wasn't because of him, it was because of me. That's how much you loved me. That Jesus would cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You had to because my sin drove you away. And I thank you that because of Jesus' sacrifice that we're about to commemorate, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life and that we can become part of your family again and we can be part of your community again. And I pray for us as we worship you right now, as we spend just a moment. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. How great you are. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.